All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the AI Stories podcast. I'm Neil Leiser. I'm a data scientist at IWOCA, and I'm your host. So today, we've got Russian Patel, who is the head of enterprise data science at Marks & Spencer. So Russell first did an MEng in aerospace engineering at the University of Cambridge, and then did a PhD in control theory at Imperial College London. After that, he had a lot of experiences. He went into consulting, worked as a research scientist. He even worked at Red Bull Racing in vehicle modeling and simulation. And we're going to touch on this later on in the podcast. And as I mentioned, he is now the head of enterprise data science at Marks and Spencer. So Russian, I'm so excited to have you here with me today. How are you? Very well, thanks, Neil. Yeah, and thanks for inviting me. Pleasure to be here. No worries. Pleasure to have you. So my first question will be quite classic. Uh, I want to learn more about you. How did you learn about AI? How did you get into this field? I guess when you started, AI might have been quite new. So how did you learn about it and why did you choose AI? Mm -hmm. Sure. So um, when I uh, I graduated from from... Um, with a PhD back in 2010. And actually, at that time, data science and AI were, were still, you know, not well-known fields, actually, most, mostly in the research domain. I started my career in, in engineering. And then over, you know, over time, data science and AI were becoming more and more prominent in industry. And it was a few years ago that I kind of made the switch from sort of what you would think about as, as pure engineering to more of a... As, of a generalist data scientist, basically. So a lot of there's a little crossover in the skill set. So it's it's not an uncommon switch to see. But yeah, really, I, I became more interested in in data 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 science and how we could use techniques from machine learning and data science to solve problems. Did a lot of sort of self self teaching, and then slowly actually moved into a job in that and and, and built up my experience there. All right, cool. So, so first had some kind of engineering experiences, and then moved to more data science side of, side of things. I would say I want to learn more about this engineering background. You just mentioned mm -hmm. you did a PhD. I know it's in control theory. So, can you just briefly explain what's control theory? What is it about? And what did you work on basically during your PhD? Yeah. So, control theory is is very simply, uh, the control of dynamic systems. It's been applied uh, in various domains, typically things like chem chemical process engineering, um, automation and robotics. You see it sometimes in economics, places like systems biology, operations research. And really, it's about how do I control sometimes a simple system, sometimes a complex system in, in a way to achieve some sort of objective. Um, so that can be, you know, if, if you're thinking about autonomous systems moving in the world, it might be minimizing fuel or uh, avoiding obstacles, etc. So my particular topic in, in my PhD was around unmanned control of unmanned aircraft. Uh, we used to call them UAVs. Now they're called unmanned aircraft. But basically, if, if you can imagine an aircraft flying without a pilot, trying to get from A to B with a bunch of obstacles in its, in its way, what's the, the optimal path for that? And how do we... The, the other part of control uh, that's very important is how do you deal with disturbances in your environment so 
if you think about an aircraft flying, you might have wind, you might have other other things in the environment that you don't explicitly model. So we 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 think about how how to build stable control systems where there's uncertainty in in sort of some of the inputs into those systems. Um, and and nowadays it, you would you would think about autonomous cars and lane changing maneuvers etc., which would all use control theory. I think probably one of the best examples would be thinking about SpaceX and their sort of reusable uh, space module. So when that comes in to land, it lands on a pad in the ocean. You might have seen the video, it's sort of pinpoint landing. That would all be using control theory. So that's, you know, controlling quite a, uh, obviously complex, quite large dynamic system to, to get some sort of outcome, which is that safe landing. So, so is it like having some kind of model of the world or of the object and then using this model to make decisions or predictions or actions? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we model the dynamic system uh, and usually that can be differential equations. We, we have things called state-space equations, which, which we use, you know, typically found in physics and engineering. And using those equations, we project, we, we can project forwards in time given a set, a set of inputs. And we use that projection to then work out, okay, what is the optimal control, uh, you know, to, to achieve that outcome. Um, but yeah, all built off, off models. So in some sense, it is kind of similar to AI, right? Because in AI, you also have a model and you use it to make predictions. But I guess in your case, you might have some kind of more concrete model, whereas in AI, it's only data. Yes, exactly. So th the closest analog in AI would be reinforcement learning. And so reinforcement learning and optimal control are very closely linked. They're basically solving actually the same problem, just using slightly different angles. So in control, as you say, actually, we model the environment, the, the system, the world. In re model-free reinforcement learning, which is the, the, the sort of most prominent or the most famous at the moment, you, you do everything by experiencing the world. In, potentially in simulation, but you don't build an explicit model. So your controller is almost implicitly learning what the what the model for the world should be. In control theory, we actually explicitly state, okay, this is what we believe the model, uh, the world to be, and and th that's why they have slightly different uh, sort of control paradigms. Um, but at some point, they sort of marry up in the middle, theoretically speaking. Okay, I see. Yeah, thanks for this. That's that's actually very interesting. Yeah, I it made it made me think of reinforcement learning actually. So it's good that you you mentioned this. I now want to move on a bit to your career. So I know that after your your PhD, you started to work in industry. You had a lot of different experiences. You went into consulting, research scientists, Red Bull Racing. You're now the head of enterprise data science at Marks and Spencer. So first of all, I kind of wanted to get your view. On um, nowadays, I feel like a lot of people are changing positions every one, two, three years. So, what's your view on changing jobs via staying uh, a long time at the same place? Why did you want to change so much and experience different things? I'm I'm curious about this. Yeah, so you're right. A lot, a lot of people, and actually in data science, you find people do change quite a lot probably more so than in, in some, some of the other domains. And I think for, for me, it's about experience and, and learning. And particularly early on, 
you, you go up you, whenever you join a company there's a kind of a learning curve right and you you learn a lot at the start and that starts to plateau over time and uh, even though i moved into sort of different domains um actually quite a lot of the work the, the underlying work in terms of algorithm development was, was quite similar in those domains so the 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 sort of theoretical foundation which which actually came from that control theory and phd was the the underlying sort of line running through all those all those um jobs but i i wanted to experience you know different environments small companies big companies and whenever i felt you know i was no longer sort of learning anymore from that particular role i i would look at yeah if there was another role um, that i was interested in having said that i do know people that have you know stayed in companies for a very long time right 8 10 years and there's an advantage to that as well and that's you you really get to know a company you get to know how it operates and particularly in large companies it's quite important that that part is quite important and and through that you get a lot a lot of opportunities probably because you know because people move around if if you're uh if if you're the, the sort of experienced hand people off, will often come to you right for um, when they need to solve certain problems so yeah either way can work i think and a lot will depend on the personality of the person and also what the companies they're working for are like and what they're kind of getting getting back from those jobs yeah i see yeah that's interesting it's, it's interesting because first of all i discussed actually that with my manager and he also tells me whenever you stop learning you should quit because there is no point in staying somewhere where you don't learn and on the other hand well there is also like a lot of people from my family you know back in the time people were staying 10 15 years at the same company so a lot of them are telling me you should stay a lot of time you should you should stay 10 years and then you will see why why changing all the time so yeah was interested to have your view on this it's cool and i know kind of one uh, zoom in a bit into your experience at red bull racing i'm i'm a big fan of formula 1 especially after watching this netflix series <laughs> not sure did you watch it yeah i i have seen some of it yeah yeah i find it very cool and yeah so basically just first of all maybe give a brief intro describe a bit what you did there what was your role at the company yeah so i worked in the simulation and modeling team and so this is part of the the kind of wider vehicle dynamics team and in simulation and modeling what we're doing is one simulating um how the car behaves and and we do that by building models of the car in quite a high level of detail so you know we build models for the tire the suspension system the chassis we then layer in aerodynamics models that come from you know the aerodynamics groups and the reason you want to do this is you want to be able to simulate the car cheaply if you like so there you can always take a car to a track and and run it around a track but that's very expensive and track track testing time is limited now the next best thing is to actually be in a physical race simulator um so at red bull we have a number and and all the f1 companies actually have a number of race simulators where drivers can come in and and race the car but that's also time consuming essentially and those those simulators are built off of the models that the simulation group make and then there's a kind of a third level of modeling which is almost purely computational which is where we simulate a car going around a track um but without a driver actually with with 
an autonomous driver effectively. So that was what I was doing there. So I was building this kind of optimized, what we call the dynamic lapsim optimization tool. So that would take uh, those high fidelity models of a the car. They would we would run a, 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 almost a simulated drive around the car and try and understand what the optimal um, setup is for the, the the car parameters that we can vary. So those can be things like um, toe, camber, tire pressure, you know, aerodynamic flap angles. So before before a race car goes to a track, you know, you set all the, you have an idea of where you want to set the those um, parameters up as a starting point, and then when they're at the track. They'll start to, you know, modify those as they start to do some testing. So the, the tool was aimed at, at kind of optimizing those parameters offline before before needing to, to go and do it online. Okay, okay, I see. So you you have the initial model of the car, and then you kind of play with the parameters to try to find the optimal combination of parameters or the optimal car. Is, is that yeah, right? the, that's right. The optimal combination of parameters. Um, And in in finding the optimal combination of parameters, you actually you can output some some other things that are very useful for performance engineers, which is the sensitivity of the car to those parameters. So we can get you know how you know how much does your uh, speed vary as a, as a function of you know this flap angle, for example. Um, so those those kind of things, performance engineers who who sort of analyze a car in more detail they can use that tool then to understand okay where are the biggest gains to be had so and this is a highly computational process it could with a high fidelity model simulated around a track and there's a lot of high frequency dynamics you have to capture so your, your sort of step size is very small um so it can actually take you know up to do two days to to solve a single lap using that kind of tool But then, yeah, that that data is effectively used by performance engineers to work out where they can, you know, what are the highest lead, sort of most powerful levers they can they can change in the parameters to to influence certain parts of the car. And, and how long does it take to go from the computer to building the real car? Like, is it a long process, or is it something that can be done in a few days? I think um, overall the. The cars are built quite can be built quite quickly, and and that's because with F1 teams, almost all manufacturing takes place on site, mm -hmm. um, and and you know so the chassis etc can all be built on site. So you know once you're happy with a, a configuration, uh, let's say either a suspension system or the aerodynamics, you you know they can they can then process that quite quickly, which is why actually when you see you know, crashes and things, the car's still perfect for the next race, basically, uh, because they can, you know, new parts can be built <laughs> at speed. Yeah, yeah, I see. And and I'm curious about this. Is there one time where you made some kind of significant change just before a race or something like that? And you can, you could actually see that your change was actually good and doing something on the racetrack? Um, so I would say there's probably... It's very hard to, to to find single changes that make a, a difference to an F1 car, actually. And uh, at the time I was working at Red Bull, most of the performance was actually coming from the engine. So you'll remember Mercedes were very dominant at that time. Red Bull actually only this season have, have caught up. 
the, the engine was the, the overriding factor. So there were aerodynamics um, changes going in, there's suspension changes going in, there's changes to the car setup, but you to, to, to see them <laughs> is actually very difficult. But what we would, you know, what we can see is if you think about the, the setup process for the car, we, we use our tool to understand, okay, what are the key parameters and where should we set up the car to start off with? We would then go into a simulator potentially with that setup and the race car driver comes in and you can immediately see that they're more comfortable or not with, with that setup. So, you know, with a softer, you know, spring in one place or um, a different parameter set up for, a, for, for another part of the car. And so there you, you can quickly see where uh, the tool is making a difference. Okay. Okay. I see. And you mentioned you mentioned something interesting. Mercedes was quite dominant at the time, and I know they've been dominant in the field for like six years, something like that. What did you feel working for Red Bull Racing? Did this dominance of Mercedes actually motivate you to work harder and beat them, or did this kind of drove your motivation down because you knew that Mercedes would be winning? Anyway, how was it? And did you feel this pressure, basically? Yeah, I think, so in my team in particular, because we're building sort of tools, we're one step removed from the, you know, the week-to-week or the weekend-to-weekend racing. So I I would say it's probably not motivating or demotivating in a sense, because we know what we build will be used over a long term, many years, basically. And... You know, the example now being actually now that the the engines have caught, Red Bull's engine has effectively caught up with Mercedes performance, you now see the other parts of the car being dominant, right? So, and that will include every, you know, everything we've done in simulation modeling, it'll include all the aerodynamics, you know, all the materials uh, work that goes on, etc. So we knew that time, I guess, could come, you never know that it would come, but it could come. So you're you're kind of motivated by that, really rather than the sort of weekend to weekend racing results but of course you know if when you work in an f1 team you know if you do do well on a particular race weekend then there's a great great atmosphere after that so it is a really sort of exciting and motivating place to work in general yeah it it looks like very looks like you had a fun experience i now kind of want to move into the ai side of your career so just to recap you did your phd then had a bunch of experiences, including Red Bull Racing, had some other experiences, and now you are the head of enterprise data science at Marks & Spencer. Marks & Spencer, for those who don't know, is a pretty big company in the UK. I think they made like 10 billion in revenues in 2020. Mm-hmm. Yeah, roughly that, yeah. So, yeah, pretty big. Can you first maybe explain to or listeners, what's Marks & Spencer? What are they doing, just in general? Yeah, so Marks & Spencer is actually quite an old retail company. I think it's over 130 years old. And they predominantly work in the food and clothing businesses. And they do have some other smaller businesses. So, for example, a bank, you know, with currency exchange. They have also an international business, um, which is run... Uh, through franchises so you will see mns's you know around the world but the majority of revenue would come from the uk business okay thanks and and what's your role exactly what does enterprise well head of enterprise data <laughs> science 
means. I know it should be related to data science, but yeah, what, what does yeah, it mean? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, so, um, so generally, so at M&S and, and probably a few other companies, we, we sort of bucket data science into two domains. You have a customer domain, sorry, and an enterprise domain. And so when we think about customer domain, we're thinking about data science related to understanding and providing sort of, yeah, understanding, providing value for the customers. So those are things like marketing, uh, segmentation, customer lifetime value modeling, our loyalty program. Those, those are would all sit in the customer side. When we talk about enterprise, we're, we're thinking about data science to improve decision-making within the business itself. So those are areas such as pricing, uh, supply chain logistics, general merchandising. So, you know, what product should we buy? How much volume should we buy of them? Where should we range them? Because we don't put all products in all stores. And then uh, similarly on, on our .com, you know, how do we allocate the stock in, in different pots uh, so that you maximize, you know, the availability of the products and, and therefore, you know, the, the kind of sales. Cool, cool. And can you maybe describe a project? I know you mentioned a few examples, but in more details, an AI project that you've worked on and that had some impacts in the company. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I can talk about our first the first project we did in the enterprise space, actually. So just, just to give a bit of context, data science, a central data science team at MS is reasonably new. So the, the team was set up just about two, two years ago. And the enterprise team specifically was, was set up just over a year ago. And the first project we did there was around a topic called markdown optimization. And so markdown is actually just uh, another word for sales. So we have M&S has four sales per year. So usually, you know, a Christmas sale, yeah, summer, autumn, et cetera. And prior to our, our kind of model modeling, uh, the, the prices in those sales were set, set using kind of quite basic heuristics, I would say. So, you know, 40% off, they, they would start at 40% off and then it would go to 70% off, maybe 90% off in three stages. So we built and trialed a, a, a data science model that basically learns from historical sales what the actual uplift is going to be um, based on different discounts. Um, we then run actually an, opt an optimizer over that forecast to understand, okay, what price, what prices do we want to set for each product individually uh, to max maximize revenue, basically. And uh, in, that, in that project, we, yeah, we did a small scale trial back in September last year. We did a much larger trial uh, in the UK in um, December, so for Christmas sales. And that was, both of those were positive. So we rolled out a production version of that. So now all, pretty much all sale pricing is, is done by our, our model. And the calculated benefit from that was actually around 10 million in profit per year. Yeah. Um, so it's actually a huge, yeah, it, it was a very large impact. And that that's driven, you know, that's driven actually because overall M&S puts about 700 million pounds worth of stock into sale every year. So just getting a couple of percentage points improvement can, can drive that kind of um, uh, impact, uh, which, yeah, was, was very nice. So off the back of that, you know, project we've actually spun up, yeah, different projects within M&S. So the team has grown. Uh, we work on mass promotions now. We work on allocation. And, and also in, in the foods domain, we did a project around ranging. So 
we've started to build confidence because actually at M&S, one, one of the issues is as an old school sort of English retailer, you know, data science is quite new and, and retail isn't tech, they're <laughs> quite different, uh, you know. So if you go to a tech company, it, it's quite different to go to a retail company uh, to work. So there's there's a lot of kind of confidence building and stakeholder engagement that we we go through to, to be able to sort of get the confidence to do for people to invest then in in data science solution um, yeah you mentioned something interesting there like you're working for a non-tech business and it seems like mark and spencer is trying to grow their data science team and become more tech focused so how is it actually to to be part of this transition uh, and having to build all this new infrastructure I guess, is it something very complex and difficult or is it something also very exciting and challenging because you're transforming a pretty big business? What, how do you feel about this? Yeah, so it, it is very exciting because we're making yeah some huge changes actually within the business and how it, how it operates. And we can you know immediately see the impact from those changes. But it does come with uh, huge challenges as well. And, you know, just to give you an example, if you start data science, you know, as a company that is not used to doing data science, even the infrastructure that you use needs a lot of development, right? So to deploy data science models in production, you'll know, right, it it's, it's requires uh, some experience, you know, the right kind of tools. So, and you have to build that over time because, no, you know, that experience doesn't exist in the business to start. So there are there, there are definitely challenges, but I think we can already see across not just the enterprise team, but the custom customer domains, and more widely in the sort of data and digital uh, functions within MS that there's been huge impact. And you know we can see the pace of change. And actually, you know, COVID ironically has accelerated quite a lot of that because prior to COVID, our online business was just a small part of, of MS. Now it's almost 50%, which means you have to, you know, if you think about the supply chain implications, but also the website itself, how much more effort has to go into maintaining and, and ensuring that sort of competitive. So yeah, huge amounts of change can be very challenging because a lot, a lot is happening. And as you say, it's not a tech company. So there's a lot of education required. But yeah, when you see the impact, it, it is great to see. Yeah, I guess when the stakeholders see that with a single project, you can save 10 million per year. I guess, yeah, they should be quite keen to hire more people and make further. Yeah, exactly, to, to invest in that in that side of, of, of the business. And, and that's exactly what we've seen, um, basically. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. I would do the same if I can find, someone can find me <laughs> saving 10 million, I would, yeah, hire him or do something for sure. I kind of know one uh, still talk about Marks and Spencer, but more about the management side, side of things. So first of all, you mentioned that the team has grown quite a lot. How many are you? Um, we're at eight now um, in the enterprise team, yeah. So you're managing seven people. Yeah. Yeah. And so I want to have your view on this. How How is it to manage seven people? And what's your strategy to make sure the team is as productive as possible and efficient, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think the transition actually into managing larger teams is always is, a, is an interesting one because I've been very technical uh, up until probably just 
prior to MNS when I started managing small teams. And it's always hard to let go of the, the technical aspects. You always want to be involved, but actually, they're, they're, you know, it becomes more and more difficult as as more and more your time gets spent on on those management um, aspects, ensuring the team has what it needs to to perform and and you know enjoy their work. The I think the the real challenge in data science is it, it's a bit different actually to engineering because in, in engineering the job is very well known and it's you know we've been doing engineering for years and and the tools are known and and the, the kind of processes are, are well known in data science with you know across the all industries everyone's still learning how to do data science well where we talk about ml ops and um, infrastructure and tools and um, there's a huge host uh, there's a host of tools out there and understanding okay you know what what do we need what are the basic things we need for data scientists to operate data scientists come from a huge amount of variety of backgrounds in general and they have different skill sets you know some will be better at software engineering some might not have touched software engineering before some will have statistics you know kind of statistics background or experimentation background others won't so the challenge is you know for, for those being able to kind of meld those different skill sets and still give everyone the, the you know the tools to, to be productive and to add value and at the same time you know you have to uh, deliver basically and we have to um, demonstrate that we're adding value so we don't have you know huge amounts of time to bed people in etc so it's kind of that balancing act I think that, that particularly in managing data science teams uh, we have to overcome yeah, I, I guess there are so many possible things that you could do. So you need to kind of filter things out, see which one would bring most value in the short term, but also in the long term, I guess. Yeah, we do. We, we spend a lot of time actually on prioritization and understanding where we can add value. And, you know, even we, we also look out to other companies, right, and see, okay, where are other companies in retail adding value uh, through data science? Because... As you say, you know, there's a huge amount of things you could do. We could do computer vision here. We could do, you know, NLP there. But actually, sometimes it's those core business processes, you know, things like price, pricing, ranging, which maybe don't sound super exciting, but it's actually where you can add you know, huge, huge amounts of value because they go to the very heart of how that business operates. And, and simply also in the supply chain side, you know, if you think about a company like Amazon and how much sort of competitive advantage they get through their supply chain uh you know everyone's really running to catch up with with that i know i want to spend the last part of the interview just mm -hmm. talking about the startup that you're working on uh, on the side i know you're working for a startup called prograd do you want to talk about this what they're doing what's your role there yeah sure so prograd is basically a company that has a mission to enable financial inclusivity for young people focused on them completing their education. So the, the founders of ProGrad both studied together and they both found that actually obtaining finance to, for example, do a master's is, is not necessarily that easy. Um, we have a student loan system in the UK, but it doesn't include, it's not inclusive of everybody and it's not often enough 
to you know fulfill all the costs, the tuition fee costs, living costs, etc. And off the back of that, what had been happening is students potentially going to payday lenders or other you know unsecured lending companies with very high interest rates um, and and getting into sort of debt bubbles. So our our mission is to to try and solve that problem, and we do that by helping banks understand the future potential of, of a student. And what I mean by that is, so a bank currently would find it very difficult to lend anything to someone who has zero income. But pretty much all students, apart from potentially part-time jobs, have zero income, So, and which is why you've got this gap. But what, And what we do is apply, I guess, data science modeling. So we build a set of models to help really predict what a student can earn post-graduation to, to that kind of potential element. And that's then enough for banks to start to understand, okay, what is the risk of lending to, to a particular student? And um, so, yeah, my role there, I've been essentially advising and helping with the, the, that data, those data science elements. And, you know, we started probably close to a year ago now when it was, we were all just talking about really an idea from the from the co-founders, we've actually sort of progressed really well. Um, programmed, you know, are in textiles have just secured their first round of funding. We've had lots of conversations with banks, and the the interesting thing is, banks do want to, you know, serve the student market. It's it's they've just got that barrier. But the reason, it, and you know, it's it's almost a selfish reason. That it's not only that they you know they they can sell financial products into students, but also students might become long-term customers, right? And, you know, they might then go in the future for car financing loan, for mortgages. And so building relationship early with a student has really um, a sort of large impact actually overall over the life cycle of a banking um, customer. Okay, yeah, I see. So AI is quite actually a very important part of the product because that's actually your credit score model. And uh, that's actually basically the main innovation, right, is having some kind of AI algorithms that can be used to predict revenues. And then I guess based on those revenues, bank will decide how much money they will uh, lend to a student. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So there's two elements to lending um, that banks will think about. They'll think about, are you credit worthy? As in, should I, no matter how rich or how much money you earn, should I lend to this person at all? And then the second one is affordability. So credit credit worthiness tends to focus on, you know, have you missed payments for things in the past? Are you just, for, you know, you just forgetful? You know, have you got any CCJs? Typically, traditional credit scoring would come from a bureau-like experience. You know, everyone has a, or almost everyone, unless you've never had any financial product, would have a credit score. But for, for students that they would, you know, it would effectively not exist or be very low because I've never had any financial products. So one thing we can do for, for credit worthiness is looking at open banking and how people have behaved with their finances in the past. And that can give us an idea of whether they're credit worthy or not. So whether you should lend, lend to them at all. And then the second element is that affordability element. So should, um, you know, if you are going to lend to someone, how much do we believe they can afford and a bank would have no way of, of knowing that because they have no income projection. So that's where that future potential engine, as we call it, comes in, those data science models that's, that then say, okay, you know, we believe 
with a, uh, this amount of confidence that someone will earn um, in this region, you know, based on that, you can charge an interest rate of X percent and you can lend them, you know, X, X thousand pounds. And that's that with those two elements combined, you then have, uh, uh, yeah, the, the ability to, to almost start to lend to students. Yeah, I see. That's that's very cool, actually, because I I'm also I'm working for a fintech company, so um, I know what you're talking about, and I know my company is not going to lend to someone who doesn't have any revenue. Like as you mentioned, we might accept him as a in a credit point of view, but the affordability would be zero, right? Because this customer doesn't have any revenue. So I think it's cool that you're doing those kind of revenue predictions mm. to put some kind of credit score. That, that's very interesting. And you mentioned that you just secured a round of funding. So I guess your product is probably going to still change quite a lot. Do you already have some kind of AI vision for the future? For this, um, for this product? Yeah, for this product. Yeah, I think, you know, the vision would be to build a marketplace, actually, for, for students. So as a student, you know, there's always a convenience element, right? So if, if let's say you need a loan, you, you were starting a master's and you wanted to, you know, get a laptop, you need a laptop. You, do you want to go to each bank individually and see if they can give you credit for that? But probably not. But so, so the vision for the product is actually to build a marketplace. So, so, so it's kind of one-stop shop for students to be able to go to and see all the lending products that banks could give supported by you know the, the the scoring that we do and in addition you can layer in then other uh, features in that product so things like okay can you help students budget can you help students understand how to improve their credit rating or credit score you know what are the behaviors that will then enable them to access more credit um, etc so there's a kind of overall vision where you know, we can connect students to firstly better, you know, better management of their finances, and then secondly to to products in in the financial market. Now, just to finish this uh, episode, looking back at your career, you've done a lot of different jobs, uh, different sectors. You went into finance uh, or fintech, retail, autonomous driving. Um, I'm wondering, do you think there is one particular industry where AI is very powerful and able to maybe completely change the field? Or is it more some kind of general effect that AI has today? So I think actually it's probably more general and that it, it, data science and AI can impact pretty much every industry. And which is why now you see actually pretty much in every domain, data science teams being being built there will be bigger impacts in some than others or driving being autonomous driving being one right that's that's a huge um sort of societal change actually if you go to full auton autonomy and driving but actually you know in retail uh, mckinsey released a report not too long ago that showed that financially ai can have the biggest impact in retail actually and that can be around you know, understanding consumer trends, fashion trends, and then all those other bits and pieces around merchandising, right? So getting the products to people, uh, having the right availability, um, the right stock amounts, etc. We've already seen in finance and fintech the impact it's having, um, and we've already 
you know, chatting about that. So yeah, I, I would say across all industries almost, you know, I'd be surprised if there's an industry that that can't actually be touched <laughs> by, by data science and AI. There probably is, um, but I haven't thought of <laughs> I haven't thought of one yet. And also because as I mentioned, you worked in so many different places, you're working on the side in the startup program, which is a completely new and small startup. You're working also for Mark and Spencer, which is a pretty big company. So different types of company. Where do you think is the optimal environment for a data scientist to learn and progress? So this is a very good question. I think there can be, a, a, there's pros and cons to to both, really. So at, at large companies, the thing you will get is a lot of data. So you will get a lot of data to play with. You'll probably get good infrastructure, um, decent tools, and usually high impact problems. You'll also get more of a generalist view of data science because there will be many pro- um, people working in many different domains across data science. You know, and you will interact with them, even if you are only working on one problem space. You'll you'll get that over sort of helicopter view. I think that the disadvantages of working in a large company are, you know, actual how long it takes to get stuff done. So there's always a a, a cost <laughs> working in a big company. You know, there's, they tend to be slower moving. Stakeholder management tends to take up a, a lot more time, which can mean you know production pr- productionizing a data science model can be a longer than it would otherwise be in a startup on the flip startups yeah you you can you tend to i think work in very specific domains so you know you might go and work for a computer vision company and you'll only do computer vision or you might work in nlp and only do that so you would you potentially you could end up focusing more in a single domain the the challenge always in smaller companies is is data because everyone wants to build cool models but you need you, you basically need data right and often small companies don't have enough data so whilst they they get by until you know they, they get more funding and you can get more data and you can get into that virtual cycle you'll always be challenged i think or, or often be challenged at startups with having enough data to to be you know to be doing that high, the sort of high impact data science so yeah, but but on the on the flip side, you can you know push things into production within a week <laughs> if you if you want. So uh, you know the the amount of sort of bureaucracy etc. involved is is a lot lower. So there, there are advantages to both sides. Yeah. yeah, and particularly I guess if you using deep learning, you need even more data. You probably need hundreds of thousands or millions of data points. But yeah, it could be could be quite challenging. Yeah, exactly. And. Let's just finish this by one question. If you had one advice for data scientists that are starting their career or want to get into the field, well, what would it be? Just one advice. It would be to, to really focus on the, the surrounding skill sets of data science. So, and what I mean by that is, you know, d- data scientists can come from a huge number of backgrounds, right? And you, you essentially, you just need a quant background and, and you can become a data scientist that what we find when uh, we're hiring people often and particularly at, at the younger end of the spectrum um, people just entering the job market is 
we would either have to go on their potential to pick up technologies, um, which is difficult to judge actually at, at interview stage sometimes, or they will have demonstrated that they've picked up some of those already. And those can be things like, you know, some more mature software engineering skills. Um, SQL is a big one that often people don't, don't learn early on, but, but it's pretty vital. And yeah, soft skills as well. Data scientists can't live without soft skills because we, we spend so much time explaining, you know, how the models work, dealing with stakeholders, dealing with other teams as well. Data scientists alone can't solve any problem, basically. <laughs> so yeah, I think those would be, definitely be the, the area to get those, those surrounding skill sets honed in any way possible. Well, thank you so much, Roshan. It was a pleasure to have you here. Really, you made us learn a lot. So yeah, thanks a lot. Have a good day. And yeah, hope to, hope to see you soon. Thanks, Neil. Um, um, appreciated the chat. So catch you soon.